You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. My brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Before we come to a passage that is just beautiful, laying out just the way of salvation in simplest terms, Lord, we know that there's much confusion in the world today about how one would receive forgiveness of sins or how one would have eternal life in heaven and escape the wrath of God that is in hell. So, Lord, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we to speak clearly, plainly to any individual here that needs this message, Lord. And I pray for any individual that is perhaps walking and standing comfort in their own good works and their own righteousness and more than today. Lord, their mouth of defending themselves would be stopped. They would be just aware that they're a sinner in need of salvation, in need of atonement, in need of a sacrifice for their sins. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, about two weeks ago, we were there in the park. We began chapter one, and we looked at how the the gospel is very subversive. That means that the gospel is very confrontational. The good news comes to sinners, and it stands up to them in their face and says, "Look, you've had a worldview that is incorrect. You've had some ideas that are just not truthful." And so the truth comes and gets face to face, toe to toe, with false ideals. But it doesn't just say you're wrong. The good news comes and brings rightness in its place. And so we've been looking in chapter 10, how our self-righteousness is confronted in the book of Romans. Righteousness speaks of being right with God. And so you just throw the word self in front of that, and it would mean that you 
you agree and you believe that you are right with God because of your own works or because of your own merits or because of something you've done, some pedigree that you have, some social standing you might be a part of. But the Word of God in the book of Romans that we've been studying tells us that it's not by works of the flesh or anything that we do, but it's by grace that we are made right. It's by a free gift of God that we are made right and that we have right standing before God. And so the self-righteousness of the sinner is confronted here in chapter 10. As you see there in verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer for God is that Israel might be saved. And we looked at the qualities and the characteristics of someone who would stand toe-to-toe with false ideals. And, you know, we have the temptation to get fucked up and to get prideful in our own ideas, right? So we'll go up to somebody and we'll get all red in the face and we'll get all sweaty and we'll just point the finger. You're wrong. Here's why. You know, just so unloving and it's just so unrespected by the hearer. But we see Paul's heart of subversion here in the book of Romans. That first of all, in verse 1, he has affection. He just, he just says, man, I have got a heart's desire for these people. I just have a care in my heart. I have affection for these people. And he doesn't only have affection, but we see even in verse 1 that there's intercession for these people. He prays for them. And we looked at this in depth two weeks ago, so we won't go that deep. We'll continue on. Just a little review. So affection for people. Do you have affection? People in your workplace, family members. You know, the community that gathered here last night and just the people, you look at them, it's just obvious. They're just hopeless. Now, they're just at the end of themselves, which is a good place to be, actually. You have affection for them, and then have you prayed for them, and you've interceded for them. Paul prayed for them in verse 1. Second thing, there's observation. In this case, Paul did that they were very zealous. His brothers, Israel, they were very zealous. But that zeal was not according to knowledge. And so we can apply that to today's, you know, witnessing field and harvest field. And say, you know, man, these people, they're, they're passionate. But they're not passionate about the right things. Or they're sincere. But they're sincerely wrong. And understand the uh, mission field that God has put you in, having these observations. And, and the next week thing we see in verse 4 is explanation. After having a love for the lost and praying for the lost and observing where the lost has fallen short of the glory of God, we see in verse uh, 4 there that there's explanation and there's the, the good news brought to bear on the dark problem of sin. And he lays out there that it's Jesus. He's the end of the law of righteousness for everyone who believes. And so as we looked at this confronting gospel, that the gospel doesn't back away. The gospel sees there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And the gospel has the good news to solve and heal the problem through affection, observation, intercession, explanation. Today we see something else that the gospel does in verses 5 through 10. We see that the gospel converts. So the gospel converts and the gospel converts. Now, 
Conversion is an offensive word, or convert. I remember in high school, I was very zealous for Jesus, and I would go around my school packing my Bible with me everywhere I went, you know, and I had a Bible study in my school, and I'd hand out flyers and tracts, and we would open our preach in one of the common areas in our campus. And I remember one guy, kind of a skater punk kid, you know, and he, he just turned to me and said, you guys just want to convert us. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's very offensive. And why is that offensive? It's like going up to somebody and telling them, putting your hand on their shoulder and saying, hey, I forgive you. You understand, that could be offensive. Why would that be offensive? Because that means that this person has wronged you in some way. That means this person has been wrong at some point, And that they're not as perfect as they probably hope that they've been. And that's very humbling thing. That confronts a person's self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Same thing with it. With you come and you bring the good news of Jesus, saying that, hey, your sins, though they're as black as coal, can be washed as white as snow. Don't you tell me that! I'm just telling you, I've got the, you know, the sufficient cleansing agent to get rid of the stain on your shirt. Why are you offended by that? Well, my shirt's just fine. No, man, you, you got a big old barbecue stain right there. You gotta wash that out, and you, just, you look like a fool. <laughs> because I love you, I'm gonna tell you, you got tripped right there. But it's offensive because when you tell people, or when people think you're converting them, if they realize that they have something to be converted from. That there's a change that needs to take place from one state and one form to another. And so the gospel of conversion, it offends our self-sufficiency. You know, as Americans, we want to hunker down and do, do hard work and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The gospel says, no, 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 no. Jesus will pull you up. You have no strength to do it yourself. So we get into verse 5 where it says Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. And so we're kind of having a quick black backdrop laid out for us. If you've ever been to a jewelry store, you know, you'll notice there's a darker backdrop behind the jewel. But that black backdrop just makes that precious stone shine all the more. And so right now we're getting into just the darkness of it. The bad news. Don't worry, we're going to fall in by the good news. But right here, Paul just lays out, hey, I got some bad news for you. Bad news is that you're a sinner. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, when we were first given the Ten Commandments, or rather 613 commandments that we were to live by, Moses says, if you want to be totally right, I mean, I'm talking totally innocent, that you've got to live by the law. And we all know we don't live by the law, do we? I mean, we've got simple little traffic laws that are just too hard for us to follow. Hey, put your seatbelt on. I don't need to wear a seatbelt. It wrinkles my shirt, you know. I grew up on a farm. We drove down the road. We never wore seatbelts. All the time, it's like, dude, the law says you got to wear your seatbelt. So... You know, a simple, simple thing like that. How much more than, you know, setting aside a whole day for Jesus and keeping it totally holy and set aside for worship. Do we do that? You know, or, or, you know, 613 things that are very difficult for us to keep. 
But Paul says, no, 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 no. If you want to be right by, quote, unquote, being a good person, then you've got to do it all, all the time. Love God with all your heart, all the time, all your soul, all the time, all your strength, all the time. And you've got to love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. And if you ever don't do those things, you've messed up and you've blown it. Every single one of us goes, ouch. I have fallen short. Not me, but that's what you're thinking, right? No, I totally have. Some of you have actually been my neighbors and you know that I've fallen short of that. But in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says that whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. You know, just watching a little bit of the Olympics. And, man, that's just crazy. It's a part of going. You know, and you watch someone who's trained and trained and trained and trained and more than I've ever done anything. You know, these people are trained. And they have had to be perfect. You know, some of these events, they're within hundreds of a second in these races. But if they miss that mark by a hundredth of a fraction of a second, they lose. They're out. No gold, no... You know, silver, no bronze, nothing. They go home with like a sweet jacket and like a sports bag, maybe a water bottle. And that's where we actually get the word sin from. It's an old English word that was an archery term. And when they would go to the competition with their arrows and their bows, they would line up and they would draw back. They would release the arrow. And if the arrow hit anywhere but the bullseye, the judge of the competition would throw up his hands and say, Sin! And it meant you missed. You missed the mark. And you guys know, within those competitions, an arrow can go and it can be right up to the bullseye. But if it's not in the bullseye, they've missed the mark. And the same is true with the righteousness that God commands. The righteousness that he requires because he is so pure, there can be zero error in his presence. There can be zero sin, any, zero impurities in his presence. That you might live your whole life like an Olympic athlete, training, working, and really doing hard. And then you're 90 years old. You know, your wife has passed away already. And you're like cruising through the house with your walker and you stub your toe. Take the Lord's name in vain. Sin. You worked so hard up until you're 90 years old, and you just blew it. Going home, no water bottle. <laughs> you know, it's over. That's the truth of us trying to self-sufficiently keep the commands of God. To keep the whole thing would stumble at one point. Sin. Start close but no cigar. You try to build a ladder to heaven, you might get up there a ways, but you'll run out of material at some point. In fact, after the law was given, Moses comes down, you know, preaching with the commandments. Immediately afterward, the sacrificial system was given because it was just known that we wouldn't be able to keep these things. So there was Bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. Perfection was required 
perfect, you had to have an atoning sacrifice. And so the blood of the bulls and the goats pointed ahead to the perfect lamb that would come. A man who was without spot and without blemish, who never sinned and had no deceit in his mouth and never had a lustful thought. And though he was tempted in every point that we are, he never sinned. And yet, rather than us being the ones that are slaughtered on a crucifixion implement, the Son of God willingly laid down his pure, perfect life so that that perfect blood could cover the multitude of your and my sins. As Charles Spurgeon said, here is a chain containing 20 links. If I break one of them, I've broken the chain. True, there are 19 perfect links, but if number 20 is snapped, down goes the cage over the mouth of the mine, and the miners are killed. How important those 20 links are in the chain. How important are every one of the 613 commandments that God has given us? Summed up in, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We failed. The cage is slammed shut. The miners have been trapped in. And so with all of this affection for the lost, intercession for the lost, observation of the lost, explanation to the lost, we have here in verse 6, the location. The location of this righteousness. Verse 6 tells us that this righteousness is actually very accessible. Look at verse 6. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So as we realize that we are lacking in righteousness, we might wonder, well, where do I get righteousness? Where do I get innocence? Where do I get forgiveness of sins? Should I build some kind of special rocket ship and cruise up into heaven and, and find this salvation? You know, go and, and meet with Jesus and have some meeting where I can reason with him about my righteousness? How about I, you know, take a giant shaft down into the abyss? You know, maybe down there. And of course, the hint there is that that's all works again, isn't it? That's works. Oh, now I just got to build a rocket ship. Now I just got to build some kind of mine tunnel ship. Now I just got to. No. We fall back to works every time. John Stott says to ask this question would be as absurd as it is unnecessary. There is no need whatever for us to scale the heights or to plumb the depths in search of Christ, for he has already come, died, and risen, and so is accessible to us. What verses 6 and 7 are saying, he's done it, and because he's done it, he's right here. No jet plane needed, no excavator needed, he is right at Stryker Park. And the way to righteousness, the way to innocence, the way of salvation, the way to heaven, the way of forgiveness is accessible because God has made this way available 
by his grace. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. I want you to think about that for a second. This good news of salvation is right here. It's near you. Think of this. It's in your mouth. How near is that? Is that close? That near. It's in your heart. And then he goes on to say, that is the word of faith which we preach. Moses spoke this. It's, it's quoted from Moses there by Paul. Saying that this word is not too mysterious for you. It's not too far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who would ascend and bring it to us that we could hear it and do it? Or it's not beyond the sea. Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us? But the word is very near you. It's in your hearts. It's in your mouth that you may do it. We're going to see in a few verses how important the heart is for salvation, how important the mouth is for salvation. Now, unlike the law of Moses, Christ is attainable. The law was never attainable. We could never do it. But Jesus, right here, right in this place, He's very attainable. He's readily accessible. This is a fantastic word. The word of faith, Paul calls it. That we can rest and cease from our labors and just receive this free gift. Just believe it. And have forgiveness from every wrong we've ever done. And so, we have the location. Where is it? Where is the salvation? It's near us, right? It's accessible. In our heart, in our mouth. Then we have instruction on what to do with it. If it's so near, Rory, what do I do? You know, some people think that, well, now you just have to go to church every week. That's part of our culture, right? You want to be safe? Be a good church goer. Be very religious. Put all these notches on your belt of religious deeds that you've done. You know, participate in some community service activity. Then you'll be safe. Guys, that's not near. Near me right now on the tip of your tongue. And here we see in verse 9, here's the instruction. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Is that good news? You confess with your mouth right here, right now, that Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. One man called this the compact confession of faith. This is it, man. This is the micro machine of Christianity right here. This confession of verse 9. Declaring that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen. This is the earliest and simplest of all Christian creeds. Before there were conferences and conventions and councils, there was the beggar, the leper, the blind man, shouting out, 
Jesus is Lord. Shout it out. One man called this a Christological confession. It's Christocentric. His deity and his sovereignty at minimum. His identity and his activity. When you say Jesus is Lord, you are declaring his identity and his activity both in one. When Peter was preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, he said, I declare to you today that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Lord and Savior. Christ and Kyrios in the Greek. Now this is important to explain. Because many people think, oh yeah, the Lord. I mean, we hear that thrown around so much. One of the worst pagan people you could run across. Well, the good Lord gave me this bottle of Jack this morning. Or others, they clear up this Lord. Oh, I believe Jesus is the Lord. What am I, what am I believing? He's some kind of British knight or something? Lord Jesus. Wearing like a monocle or something? Sorry, that's where my mind goes. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. speaks that He is God. He is Master. He is Messiah. He is Savior. The apostle that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved, John, he called himself that. That was the nickname he gave himself. 1 John chapter 4, he says, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is already in the world. So John, writing in a day when Gnosticism was rampant, a similar form of Jehovah's Witness that we have today, where people would say, you know, no matter could possibly be good on this earth, so there's no way that Jesus came in the flesh, there's no way that he actually lived the life of a human being and died the death of an atoning death on the cross as God, so he was either just a man, or he never came in the flesh and so it's important in John's day and in our day to say, no, Jesus the Son of God the Creator as Colossians 1 tells us, he created all things him, for him, through him, and all these things, Jesus consists. And so, it's very theological, it's very deep to declare that Jesus is God. It means he's come in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. He came in the flesh. Corinthians 12, says that anyone speaking in the spirit of God, if they ever say Jesus is a curse, I'm sorry, it says uh, no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now this confession that one would say Jesus is Lord, it's not just a one-time nickety-blam thing, but it is going to be modeled in their life. Are they living as if they really believe that Jesus is Lord? John takes a little bit deeper in 1 John 4, and he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that abides. So what does this mean? Jesus is the Lord. What does it mean? It's deep, isn't it? Because Jesus is 
the Son of God. Second John. We're told that many deceivers have gone out. I was just talking with the guy before the service. Like, how come all these different churches think that they're right, but they believe different things? I said, man, there's deceivers. There's men whose authority are not this book right here, but it's themselves. I'm my own authority. I'll say what I want and I'll live by it. But they're deceptive. They're deceiving themselves. They're deceiving others. And if they would say that Jesus has never come in the flesh, they are a deceiver. Or they are an antichrist. The commentator Murray said, Confession without faith would be vain. Likewise, faith without confession would be shown to be spurious or false, or deceitful. I love Acts chapter 16, the story of Paul and Silas being in prison. And they're there in prison, and they just got whipped. And they were there, chained up, when a great earthquake happened. The whole prison shook, and the chains fell off their hand, and the doors of the prison, of every cell, even the bad guys, the doors went open. And no doubt some escaped. But Paul and Silas had been singing, and they stayed in their prison cell. And the Philippian jailer was so afraid because of what happened on his watch that he got out his sword. He was about to kill himself by falling on his sword. And Paul speaks up and says, don't do that. And this guy just looks at him and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas looked at him and said, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so there's this confession of Jesus being Lord, but then the verse goes on. We go from mouth to heart, that you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are affirming that Jesus is God that the Father is God, and that the Spirit is God. Because throughout the Scripture, we see each person of the Trinity declaring, I will raise him up, or I will raise myself up, or in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit raised Jesus up. As Scott said, this is not salvation by slogan, but by faith. That is, an intelligent faith which lays hold of Christ as the crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior, this is the positive message of the righteousness that is by faith. When you declare that Jesus is Lord and he's risen from the dead, you are saying to people in this micro-machine confession, you are saying, I believe that Jesus is God, that he came and lived the perfect life, that he died a sinner's death, even though he was not a sinner, but he didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead on the third day, and now he ever lives in victory. That is what you're declaring when you say that. This is kind of a shorthand way to get all of the elements of the gospel in. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the resurrection is God's public proclamation throughout the whole universe that he and the law are absolutely satisfied and that the works of the law have been so this isn't just a saying thing, but this is a believing thing. You see back and forth here in the text. Heart, mouth, mouth, heart. That by confessing something, 
you will live it out. But let's look at verse 10. It explains it quite well. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you believe in your heart that Jesus has been risen from the dead, then man, your faith, your belief, your trusting has made you righteous in God's sight. But not only that, your confession out of your mouth declares that you're saved. It's a fruit of your salvation. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, Whoever confesses me before God, excuse me, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Can you think of anything any more terrorizing and fearful than to get before the judgment throne of God on that day? And for him to look at you and say, you know what, your whole life I was pleading with you to come to faith, to come to salvation. But you would deny me before man. You would deny my way and my plan of salvation. And so, I'm sorry, friend. Had your chances, and now I deny you before my father. You're not mine. I don't know you. Very sobering moment, and it's going to happen to millions and billions of people, and it may happen to you. Have you made a confession of Jesus that He is Lord and Savior, that He is your God, your Master, but that He's also provided the way for you to be forgiven of your sin? In John chapter 12, verse 42, we read of many of the rulers in the temple believing in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And then listen to this. For they loved the praise of men rather than God. Isn't that tragic? Watching Jesus right in front of your eyes, Raise up a paralyzed guy who for 40 years has been paralyzed. And you you believe it, but you love what men approve more than you love what God approves. So you never follow Christ. How tragic. How it happens in our midst. Romans 14, we'll get there someday. It says it's written, As I live, says the Lord, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Look at your knees right now, everybody. Look at your knees. Some of them a little banged up and bruised up. Troy's got a nice range of motion there. <laughs> Look at your knees and realize right now those knees will be resurrected one day from the dead and they will bow before the Son of God. And some of us, we can think of nothing better. I cannot wait to stand before Jesus and bow my knee and kiss his feet and just love on him. And then others despise that day. But it will come. And you can either bow your knee in humility today, declare him to be Lord, or you'll be forced to your knee. And then you'll get what you want. You will get separation from God and all of the good things that he brings 
for all of eternity. Stott, one of my favorite commentators, you might have noticed, says the word of faith, what Moses had said about his teaching, Paul now affirms through the gospel. It is neither remote nor unavailable. There is no need to ask who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or descend to Hades to bring Christ up, storming the ramparts of heaven or potholing in Hades in search of Christ are equally unnecessary for Christ has come and died and been raised and is therefore immediately accessible by faith right here, right now, in the midst of the crowd, in the sunshine or in the shade. He is accessible right now. Scott goes on to say, we do not need to do anything Everything that is necessary has already been done by Jesus. Amen? Moreover, because Christ himself is near, the gospel of Christ is near. The whole emphasis is on the close, ready, easy accessibility of Jesus and the good news. It's right here. And that is what is so exciting about doing an event like last night. Standing up on a Two trailers wedged together, a bunch of sound systems and hay bales everywhere, and just preaching Jesus and knowing that the gospel is available for any sinner that'll hear it. And if they would respond to it, they could be saved from hell for all eternity and saved from their sin and saved to eternal life for all eternity. There's nothing more exciting than that. That is like having the cure for AIDS. I know that's cliche these days, but that is like having the cure for AIDS that everyone's been waiting for and getting to just throw out vials of it to anyone that would want it. That is what my job is. That's what your job is. Throw out the good news. I'm reading a book right now, and yes, it's a World War II book. I know that surprises everybody. Military history book, Dagger. It's about a guy named William DeShazer. Now, immediately in reading the book, I was captivated because William DeShazer was from Madras. Born and raised for where that, right? Now, DeShazer, he became a uh, B-24 Liberator bombardier in the Army Air Force at the same time Pearl Harbor went down back in 1941. So not long after that, him and his uh, crew were trained to be part of the Doolittle Raiders. You guys know the Doolittle Raiders? Probably seen Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck and all those other great actors, right? These B-24 crews that would go and park their airplanes on a uh, on an aircraft carrier called the Hornet. And they tried to get as close as they could to Japan uh, before being spot by the enemy. And then they launched heavy bombers off of the top of this uh, aircraft carrier. And then they flew over to retaliate because of Pearl Harbor. They went over and they bombed Tokyo. Now most of them knew that they would crash their plane somewhere and uh, probably die, crash in the ocean. They didn't have enough fuel to really make it to land uh, because they crossed Japan and then hopefully land somewhere in China. Well, after DeShazer's crew dropped their, dropped their bombs on Tokyo, uh, they ran out of gas above China, and so they bailed out of their plane. Uh, within a day, he was captured by the Japanese, and he was put in a prison camp with six other guys from, uh, from these planes. And uh, for three years, 
He was tortured regularly, rarely had contact with any of his friends or any other individuals, received no medical aid, uh, barely enough food to stay alive. He was kept in a teeny little uh, solitary cell, had no books to read, and as he was there, he thought he was going to die. But what's interesting is that as uh, one of the few times he got together with uh, the crew members, they told him about a Bible that had been given to one of them. And so they hoped that one of the other guys would get a Bible, something to read, some way to entertain your, your mind in prison. And the day came where William DeShazer got this Bible, and he was told he could have it for three weeks. And in three weeks, he read through the Bible six times. And he memorized whole books and whole passages of the Bible. But as I was reading it this week, I found it very fitting. It says, as he received the Bible, he devoured it. Reading it through six times in three weeks. One passage brought about a very special day in his life. As he read Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he writes this in his book. The miracle of conversion took place on June 8, 1944. He had read this passage many times already, but on this particular day, somehow it became a power in his life. He laid hold upon it as the very word of God. In prayer he said, Lord, though I am far from home, and though I am in prison, I must have forgiveness goes on to write, my heart was filled with joy. I wouldn't have traded place with anyone at that time. Oh, what a great joy it was to know that I was saved, that God had forgiven me of my sins, and that I had become a partaker of the divine nature. Hunger and starvation in a freezing cold prison cell no longer had horrors for me. They would be only for a passing moment. Even death could hold no threat when I knew that God had saved me. Death is just one more trial that I must go through before I can enjoy the pleasure of eternal life. There will be no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no loneliness in heaven. Everything will be perfect with joy forever. What a testimony, huh? What a testimony of Romans chapter 10 in a man's life some 70 years ago. Look at verse 11. I know it's getting hot. We are finishing up, I promise. Last page of notes, and I go through that so quick. Verse 11, for the scripture said, don't laugh, Adam Barney. It's true. Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. It's quoted from the book of Joel, chapter 2. But if you would believe, I know you think that if you believe, that would be so shameful. So shameful to your family, to your community. That guy's a Christian now. He's a Bible thumper. A Jesus freak. Jesus says, you know what? You might get scoffed at in this world. In fact, I guarantee it. But the most important one in all of the universe who will fight for you and defend you and free you and forgive you and give you reward and inheritance 
will never deny me. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is rich to all who call upon him. It doesn't matter today if you're rich or poor or male or female or American or South American or European, whatever. If you would call on the name of the Lord today, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Saved from yourself, saved towards heaven. For verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anna, will you come on up? Catch that last verse. I know at the end of a Bible study it's easy to just whatever, just be quiet. Okay, just listen to this last verse one more time. Whoever, is that you? Are you a whoever? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isaiah tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found. And to call upon him while he is near. And today we sit here in a beautiful setting where you have opportunity to be saved. And we are so aware of how fragile life is. You fall off a bicycle, you can be paralyzed, never be able to confess and to grow and to learn in Jesus. You can be sitting in a movie theater and your life can be snuffed out in a second. Knows if one of those people in Aurora, Colorado, that heard the gospel and said, You know, one of these days, one of these days, I'll call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Not right now. You know, pleasure is just too good. Sin is just too good. Living with my girlfriend, having sex is unrestricted, it's just too good. But one of these days, when I get a little older and I still go out and sin. Maybe when I'm on my deathbed, I'll do one of those deathbed confession thingies that you hear about. You guys, we have no guarantees. And one of the new friends of mine, Ed Taylor, he's the pastor over there at Calvary Chapel in Aurora. And he ministered to many of those people who are grieving, many family members who are grieving the loss of life that was snuffed out so quickly with car accidents They're running on the high school track and their heart gets out and they just fall dead. No guarantees. But while he is able to be found, right now, right here, in a park, with a bunch of people who love you, call on the name of the Lord and he will be saved. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus, that he is God? Do you believe that he died on the cross? Crucified for your sins, that he rose from the dead and that now he's reigning as Lord. He's accessible right now. This is the apostolic gospel, the word of faith that makes us him known, and you can simply trust in him right now. That's it. Trust in him. Trust in what he's done. And you'll be saved. We're gonna move to the communion table. That's uh, probably going to be like hot tea and freshly baked cookies, something there in the sun. But as we come and we remember the Lord's Supper, we remember the Son of God stripped and 
mocked and bruised and crushed and broken, even though he did nothing wrong. Today for you, today we will thank him by drinking the symbol of his blood and eating the symbol of his body and taking those things into us, in, into us, and saying, Lord, come into me. And after communion, we're going to immediately head over into the waters of baptism. Don't you feel free? One person is already going to be baptized, but there's others today. That today will be the first time that you believe in the Lord God for your salvation. And you can come to the water and you can make a public declaration that the old you, full of sin, full of idolatry, full of immorality, full of gossip and backstabbing, that person is dead with Jesus, but also alive to Jesus. As you're buried in the waters of baptism, and as you rise out of the waters of baptism, you declare a new life in Jesus. We invite you to do that with us today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.